Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Brand boycott. Chinese consumers attack H&M and Nike over their forced labor stance. Canal congestion. The mission to move container ever given continues. And tech testimony. Twitter, Facebook, Google CEOs face Congress over misinformation. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Well, welcome once again to First Move. It's been a week where reopenings, uncertainty, vaccine delivery, holdups, plus trade bottlenecks and supply chain snafus have certainly bedeviled investors. In fact, that monster container ship still stuck in the Suez, perhaps the most potent metaphor we've got right now. We will have the latest on that, by the way. And I can tell you the solution is not simple. There's also nothing simple about the current price action either. Wednesday was another rough day for tech. The Nasdaq falling some 2%, as you can see. We're now off 8% from recent highs, even as bond yields retreat. That's the conundrum. Growth stocks like Tesla, Roku and Zoom that are not dependent on reopenings have also struggled. Tesla now down more than 10% year to date. And speaking of stock, cruise lines saw a big drop yesterday too as the United States resisted calls for a summer cruise restart. Bad news, of course, for Virgin Voyages, who we spoke to earlier this week. And of course, the jobs outlook also remaining uncertain. A further 684,000 U.S. workers claiming first-time benefits in the past week alone, still highly elevated, but it is the lowest reading since the pandemic, so we should mark that as well. Let me give you a look at the global stock market picture. U.S. futures and Europe both lower, as you can see in Asia, a mixed picture with the Nikkei bouncing some 1%. Chinese smartphone maker Xiaomi falling 4% despite posting stronger earnings. But the real focus, as I mentioned, it was the firestorm on social media targeting foreign brands for comments on China's treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. And that's where we begin the show today. Nike, H&M and other apparel brands facing a boycott in China for raising concerns about reports of forced labor in the Xinjiang province. The statements, though, are not new, but have resurfaced in the wake of fresh sanctions from the US and the EU over China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. Stephen Zhang joins us now and has all the details. Stephen, great to have you with us. Just to give our viewers a sense of the scale of the pushback that we've seen, I saw the viral hashtag, I support Xinjiang Cotton, was read more than one billion times. Talk us through what we've seen. That's right, Julia. You know, this uh, wave of uh, major backlashes against major Western brands really shows no sign of abating. In fact, this list of potential boycott targets keeps growing as we speak. And we have seen many Chinese celebrities very publicly severing uh, their ties with these brands, uh, not only H&M, but also Nike and now Adidas. And also we have seen state and social media reports about at least one uh, H&M store, for example, announcing its impending closure because of this and major 
e-commerce platforms here, Alibaba and JD, have removed all of H&M's products from their online stores, and even some uh, map software have removed H&M from its search results. So uh, these reactions really have been very swift and some would probably say over the top. Now, uh, some of the companies affected have issued statements responded to this saying uh, uh, they were simply trying to uh, assess and identify uh, potential uh, you know, forced labor risks in their supply chain and they always respect Chinese consumers. But statements like this uh, really have not placated or satisfied uh, the Chinese government, Chinese state media, as well as many Chinese consumers who see uh, this, all of these criticisms and allegations as uh, just Western concocted lies aimed at uh, you know, containing China's rise and smearing China's image. So, uh, you know, the timing of this is really far from coincidental because one of the first online posts, quote-unquote, exposing H&M, for example, came from the Communist Youth League. That's the youth organization uh, under the ruling Communist Party. So many really see this as a a state-orchestrated campaign, sending a very strong message to Western companies and, by extension, Western governments that you will pay dearly if we run afoul of the Chinese authorities. As you mentioned, this is happening against this backdrop of the U.S., EU, and the U.K. imposing new sanctions against Chinese officials over their alleged role in human rights abuses in Xinjiang. So the Chinese government and Chinese state media have been really enraged by these developments. And so this is, again, their latest uh, tactic to push back at these allegations. So as this issue of Xinjiang stays in the spotlight, you could imagine this uh, will affect more and more Western brands, maybe putting them on a very tough spot, having to choose between profits and conscience. But one thing to mention, Julia, this is also a very delicate balance for the Chinese to strike because they still want to present themselves as a very open and welcoming society and economy, especially ahead of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Julia? Yeah, a delicate balancing act for all, quite frankly, as you rightly point out, the law of more than a billion consumers, but at the same time, the US Secretary of State saying what's going on here is genocide, trying to square that circle. Stephen Zhang, thank you so much for that. And on a programming note, CNN will have an exclusive report on the Uyghur parents desperate to reunite with their children. Amnesty International says China's policies towards the Muslim minority have split up thousands of families. And David Culver has travelled to Xinjiang to look for the children who've been left behind. Just here's a quick preview. Followed by a convoy of suspected undercover Chinese police vehicles. The tail is still on us. Blocking roads that lead to possible internment camps. Keeping us from getting too close to so-called sensitive sites. See your father? CNN searching for the lost Uyghur children of Xinjiang. She definitely misses me too. Thousands of families have now been ripped apart due to China's actions. We tracked down two of them. Do you want to be with them? Do you do you miss them? The exclusive report, The Lost Children of Xinjiang, plays in an hour's time on Connect the World right here on CNN. It's worth watching, so don't miss it. All right, let's move on. Days to weeks. That's how long it could take to free the container ship currently blocking the Suez Canal. That's according to the Dutch salvage company tasked with the mission to move it. John Defteris joins us now. John, we talked yesterday about just how important this is as a trade route. But if we're talking about it being blocked for days to weeks, I mean, that's going to create huge issues. What are the options here for trying to move the vessel? 
Well, it's amazing. Since our discussion yesterday, Julia, uh, we're two days into this uh, effort, and we have a much clearer idea what's taking place within the canal. And the three options are, are pretty clear. It's tugging, uh, dredging, and unloading. And none of them seems to be unfolding very quickly at this stage, particularly if you have to unload. We now know because of that, the Suez uh, Canal Authority has suspended all traffic going into this major artery that handles 30% of all seaborne traffic. Not too surprising, but it did also announce there's two major salvage companies being hired in, uh, the big guns, if you will. Uh, one of the CEOs of the two companies, Boscalis, was suggesting that if you have to unload the vessel, it could take weeks. If we could really dredge, uh, it would take a matter of days. This is uh, sending shivers throughout the trading community uh, of course, the two companies are Smith, uh, a partner with Boscalis and Nippon Salvage, uh, because the vessel's owner is indeed uh, Japanese. Now, the current technical manager that's been doing the operation so far, BSM, said they tried to dredge along with tugging, but they're not having a great deal of influence so far. And in fact, if you look at some of the photos that are out there, you see this digger underneath the Ever Given, the vessel that's stranded, and it seems completely dwarfed. And in fact, on Dutch TV, when the CEO of Boscalis was asked, what do you think of this? And this is a great quote. He says, uh, that ship is very much in the way. It's got to be moved, uh, Julia, but not in the current operations or the current state of play in, in terms of how they're trying to solve it. I'm sort of smiling, but it's not funny at all. But very much in the way is most definitely understating no. the problem here. Uh, diverting the vessels. Yeah, it's a I was very Dutch a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, even drier than the Brits. Um, I mean, let's talk about the Suez Canal. Allianz said that 10% of global trade goes via this route. This is critically, critically important. And I was just about to say, I was looking at the map earlier. And if you're sort of diverting around the Cape of, uh, of Good Hope and the southern tip of, of Africa, surely that's going to add days, if not weeks, to the journey. So if you're a supplier here trying to decide whether you hang on in there and you wait for them to dredge this and hopefully move it, or you start redirecting your supply routes, I mean, these are tough decisions to make. And either way, it's time lost. Yeah, indeed. So if you're on the southern tip of that canal, you have to say, do I make a U-turn and head for the Cape or not? It does add a week. So those decisions will probably be made over the weekend, whether you uh, cut your losses and, and move on. And we've been talking about kind of the volume of trade. Some are saying 10 percent, but it's 30 percent of seaborne traffic. Uh, that's for sure. But what does that mean uh, on a daily basis? Well, we got some information from Lloyd's List saying it's $10 billion with the eastbound and westbound traffic. Uh, the westbound traffic is uh, slightly higher. So that is huge scale when you talk about the movement that's taking place right now. And then we said there's dozens of vessels parked. Well, we have an exact number from Lease today, uh, and they're suggesting it's 156. I thought it was interesting. Just over 10% of those handle oil, gas, and petrochemicals. Remember, we had that 6% spike in the oil market yesterday, Julia. Uh, we're coming down a little bit uh, down about uh, two and a half percent on Brent, two and three quarters percent and three percent uh, for WTI. So no panic in the oil market. They think this can be uh, solved as we go forward. It's not going to be that much of a, a simple equation. And then you have to start thinking about the fallout here of the claims going forward. Uh, we know now that the uh, owner of the Ever uh, Gain is the uh, Shoei Kinzon of the Ever Given ship right now. Uh, Evergreen Marine is the one that chartered it, and they're suggesting that the third-party owner will, of course, have to pay. They say have no claims so far, and the number one priority right now is getting that vessel afloat yet again. Yeah, watch this space. We shall see. John Terrace, thank you so much for that. There's not much space. That's the point. <laughs> mm.
All right, let's move on. Did big tech play a role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol in January? Well, that's the big question the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter and Google will face in just a few hours' time during a remote hearing with members of Congress. Tony O'Sullivan is on the story for us. Tony, great to have you with us. Interesting to see Mark Zuckerberg trying to get ahead of this hearing already and proposing some degree of limitation for these uh, online, particularly social media giants. What do we make of this and what do you think we hear today? Yeah, Zuckerberg's testimony, one line he has in it, he says, we do more to address misinformation uh, than any other company, quite possibly because his platforms have more misinformation uh, than any other company. What we're likely to hear today from these three tech execs, Google, Facebook and Twitter, is that they're all doing a whole lot of work to tackle misinformation and hate and all the money they're investing in the new policies and technology they brought in. But the facts and the evidence that we've seen over the past few months will really be able to challenge those assertions. Just a few weeks before the violent insurrection in Washington, D.C., Steve Bannon, formerly of the Trump White House, posted a video on Facebook, on YouTube and on Twitter where he said uh, Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci and the FBI director Christopher Wray should be beheaded. Twitter totally shut him down, uh, banned him forever. Facebook... Uh, said that that wasn't enough for a ban. Uh, he's also his account is also still up on YouTube. So there's there's so many examples like that. There's hundreds. There's thousands of examples, frankly. So it's going to be, I think, quite difficult for somebody like Mark Zuckerberg to say, I don't want my platform to be used to incite violence, and then stand by decisions like the Bannon one. Threatening to behead someone is not enough to trigger the comment being taken down or for someone being banned. I mean, really. What about, there's two things for me here. It's the algorithms that we've talked about so many times in the past that push people towards creating an echo chamber of like-minded views, which in this case pushes people towards extremism. Stop the steal, of course, post the election was critical to the, the capital attacks, but also the business model, which is driven by advertising. And there was a letter that was sent to, to again, Mark Zuckerberg, don't want to point him out, but we do keep coming back to him, that tactical gear ads were being shown, promoted next to those posts that were promoting the capital rights too. I mean, Tony, if ever there's a headbang moment, it's this. Yeah, yeah it's been a year of headbang uh, moments, honestly, around Before. all of this stuff. Um, yes. You know, look, I mean, this is precisely what these platforms are frankly designed to do. They're designed to connect advertisers to people based on their interests. So that is a feature, uh, not a flaw, as as one might say. And look, as I mentioned, we do focus a lot on Zuckerberg. It is because his platform really is being used as an engine uh, to stoke a lot of this. But we saw with Twitter, too. I mean, Twitter, of course, uh, was home to President Trump, uh, but also throughout the weeks, especially those months between the election and the insurrection. There were accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers every day spewing lies about the election, false or misleading videos. There was QAnon accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers. They didn't shut any of them down until the days after the insurrection. Tony, you get the quote of the show. That's a feature, not a flaw And until the perception is that this is a flaw, nothing's going to change, whether it's the advertisers or the CEOs or we as users, Donny. Awesome job. And very quickly, I believe you had a special birthday this week. So I just wanted to say happy birthday to you. This this job is aging me. (laughs) Yeah, you're so old, my friend. It was 30, wasn't it? It was. I can't wait till I get to 30. (laughs) 
<laughs> Tony O'Sullivan, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, from Washington to Europe, where diplomatic tensions grow over COVID-19 vaccines. European leaders holding a virtual meeting to discuss whether the block vaccine, whether to block vaccine exports to countries with higher inoculation rates than the EU, such as the UK. Nick Robertson joins us live from London. Nick, got to get that right, whether or not to block vaccine exports to nations like the EU. This is a diplomatic mess. What's the likelihood that the EU decide to do this? It's not clear. I mean, certainly not all 27 EU nations are aligned on this. Uh, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Ireland as well, have not, are not of the view that this is the right way to go. The British Prime Minister doesn't get a vote because the UK is no longer in the European Union, is minded it's not the right way to go as well. The two uh, sort of key issues here are reciprocity uh, and proportionality. And, and uh, this is when the EU decides should it ship vaccines to another country, reciprocity, are they shipping back? Are they shipping vaccines or vaccine components to us? If the answer is yes, tick that box and move forward. And proportionality, um, is that country you're shipping vaccines or vaccine products to um, further ahead of you uh, than in terms of vaccine rollout? And, and with the UK, the UK is wildly ahead of the European Union. It's uh, averaging right now about 45 shots per 100 people. The EU is sitting at a meagre 13 shots per 100 people. The world sort of average right now, if you will, is only six shots per 100 people. But you can see if the EU, 27 leaders today, in their virtual vote decide to move ahead with that proportionality, then yes, the UK could find itself coming up short of vaccines. Um, the view from the European Union is that the UK has been unfairly uh, getting AstraZeneca vaccines. We heard from the uh, Secretary of Health, Matt Hancock, saying that actually the UK had a, um, you know, had a, an exclusive deal with AstraZeneca. That's how they got their proportion of vaccines, where the EU only had a as best can achieve deal. So this is really high stakes. Um, we've heard from a European diplomat who said, look, um, if this goes the nuclear option of, of ticking both boxes and saying, that's it, we're going to cut off some countries. Um, it's going to backfire in the end. There are some European countries who have big pharmaceutical industries that, that contribute significantly to their GDP. And in the long run, the fear would be that those companies can be hurt. Yeah, it's high stakes today. Yeah, high stakes. And of course, as uh, Emmanuel Macron said, we simply lacked ambition. The EU lacked ambition on vaccines relative to other nations. And that was the initial mistake. Nick, we shall see what happens. Nick Robertson there. Thank you for your context, as always. All right, still to come on First Move, Intel putting its chips on the table. An interview with the CEO on accelerating design and manufacturing in the United States. And a much-needed lifeline in Brazil as it grapples with COVID-19, the delivery company that's providing financial support, too, for some of its restaurants. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. majors are lower pre-market tech, set to extend Wednesday's 2% losses. You can see we're down seven-tenths of 1% pre-market. U.S. President Joe Biden set to hold his first formal news conference since taking office later today and therefore could shed new light on his upcoming stimulus proposals. 
Treasury Secretary Yellen repeating in congressional testimony yesterday that taxes will have to rise to fund the president's multi-trillion dollar wish list. New spending, of course, likely will necessitate new borrowing. But for now, we continue to see pullback in yields in the United States, back below that 1.6%. As you can see, end of quarter rebalancing could be at play here with some investors needing to sell stocks and buy bonds before the end of the month. And of course, that then brings yields lower. Intel unveiling an ambitious turnaround plan. The company's new CEO, Pat Gelsinger, says he will spend $20 billion building two chip factories in the United States. It comes as competition intensifies from rival semiconductor giants, including Taiwan's TSMC and South Korea's Samsung. I spoke to Gelsinger after the announcement and asked whether $20 billion is enough and if they're prepared to spend more if necessary. Simple answer is yes. Uh, and uh, we do see that uh, government incentives. And as you said, you know, we're putting our chips on the table and the 20 billion, right, doesn't assume anything on the part of governments. But we've said, hey, we're ready to go bigger and faster. We may need some help to go faster, but we're putting a lot on the table ourselves. We also expect that this is, you know, a growing cycle of capital investments overall. And we do believe that it's going to be you know, continued meaningful investments over the next several years as we build out, you know, the world's largest factory uh, network. So, yes, this is a beginning. It's a big journey. And we're getting extraordinary interest and support from customers and governments worldwide. The Biden administration is going through a 100-day review here just to understand what support, what help, as part of a strategic priority to focus on chip technology and ensure supplies, to, to your broader point. Be specific. What more help does the sector need? But there's a couple of things that's uh, being looked at by the Biden administration. And one of those is what's called the CHIP Act. And this right. was passed uh, late last year and now needs to be funded and be applied against manufacturing and R&D. And we're working closely. And we had uh, Secretary of Commerce Romando join us for our announcement and really put the, the administration's stamp of approval on what we're doing. Similarly, we're seeing such actions in the EU. Uh, as well with their semiconductor uh, industry activities. So we're seeing those two governments step forward in strong ways to support these efforts. And some of that will be R&D incentives. Some of that will be manufacturing investments. Some of that will also be supplying the unique government needs as well. And they have a program called Ramp C that we've applied for to become a, a supplier to. So these taken together, we think are good programs. And we're now just looking forward to get them totally totally funded and underway because <laughs> we're ready to move as fast as they are. And uh, you mentioned what clients are saying and client feedback. We know Microsoft is on board because we heard from Sachin Nadella. What about the likes of Apple? Yeah. Can you win them back in the future? Well, in many cases, what we see is that we have great opportunity to go to people who might have otherwise been competitors and let's make them customers. And uh, people like Qualcomm were supporting our announcement. And uh, we had Microsoft and IBM. And uh, we hope to have NVIDIA and Broadcom and all of these companies taking advantage of the leading process technology. And of course, Apple as well. And uh, I mentioned them in our uh, announcement yesterday. Absolutely. I want them to be a customer or a foundry. But we have to go earn their business and really prove that we can be a good foundry supplier, have the capacity they need, 
the unique aspects of you know di different design tools and uh, intellectual property blocks for them to make available. And yes, I hope to make all of them customers of Intel Foundry Services soon enough. Fast forward five years, where is Intel? Well, as we would say, we're out to be the premier semiconductor computing company on the planet. And we are, as we like to say, you know, our technologies improve the lives of every human on the planet, right? Few companies get to make such audacious statements, but the power of technology, and I've called it the four superpowers today, cloud, AI, connectivity, and 5G, and edge computing, these superpowers are permeating every aspect of human interest, human lives, and human experience. And underneath that, everything runs on semiconductors. And I want a piece of Intel in every one of those improving the lives of every human on the planet. And that's the journey that we're on. And you know, building fabs, manufacturing, designing chips, it's simply a way to accomplish a much more you know, eternal, impactful and global objective that we would have. The new Intel CEO speaking there. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks have opened lower in a continuation of the weak price action in the technology sector in particular. Seen Wednesday, as you can see, the Nasdaq off almost 1% at this moment. At the meantime, the U.S. reporting that weekly U.S. jobless claims have fallen below 700,000 for the first time since the start of the global pandemic. That's the number year. One year on, it's both encouraging, perhaps for that reason, but it's also devastating, I think, and it makes clear that reopening uncertainties persist. It's still 684,000 people. Add that to concerns about worsening U.S.-China trade relations, global supply chain bottlenecks, and that could also play into higher inflation expectations too. There are plenty of uncertainties. Energy prices also feeling it as well. Brent and the U.S. crude off some 3%, as you can see, offsetting the supply concerns triggered by the container vessel that's holding up shipping in the Suez Canal. Now, one pandemic uncertainty, though, that may have cleared. Let's give you some good news. AstraZeneca publishing updated U.S. trial data and a slightly lower 76% efficacy rate. But, of course, still potent. The company reiterating the vaccine is 100% effective in preventing severe disease and hospitalization, too. Now awaiting approval, of course, or authorization in the United States. So a year on since many in the world began the huge work from home experiment, workplace messaging app Slack says the remote office is here to stay. They've unveiled a new range of tools to help what it calls the reinvention of work. One of those tools, though, causing a little bit of a stir. The feature allowed users to direct message people in other companies. Joining us now is Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack. Stuart, always great to have you on the show. This is where we do a coordinated eye roll, quite frankly, because the product that you announced allowing other people to message people in other firms is a great idea, but you've faced criticism over how it may be abused by, uh, by individuals. So talk us through the changes that you've made, and then we'll move on. Sure. We um, Thank you for, for having me. Um, Slack Connect is a system that lets two Slack using organizations share channels and direct message across organizational boundaries. And the intention is that people use it with their customers, their partners, their vendors. We use it with our auditors, with bankers, with creative agencies. And the, uh, the announcement yesterday was making it easier for people to set up direct messages outside of the context of shared channels. 
there was a, a lot of confusion. I think there was an unforced error on our part in how the invitation system worked, um, and that was confused with the ability to to send the messages themselves. The purpose of this is actually to increase security and, and to increase control. It's a double opt-in on both sides, um, and uh, people have complete control over who who is able to message them. So it's actually a, a pretty big step up from things like text messages, WhatsApp, email, and so on. You know, we've talked in the past about wanting to find a way to avoid ever having to send emails. Have you ever been in a situation, and actually this perhaps plays into that future focus for the firm, a client that's replaced email entirely and just uses Slack to communicate? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so to be clear, you can't get rid of email entirely. And, and we have no intention of trying to do that because it serves many purposes. But that's the downfall of it as well when used for internal communication. So uh, there's many, you know, probably thousands of organizations that don't use email for internal communication. But of course, they still have to use it for getting receipts from online purchases and resetting passwords um, and receiving calendar invites and a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, when the SolarWinds hack took place, and I, I don't think it was talked about enough, you were one of the first people I, I thought of. And the fact that emails do remain incredibly vulnerable if they're hacked, is this another argument for perhaps a system like Slack as an alternative? And you're saying, look, we're never actually going to formally replace email, but as an alternative, or are you equally vulnerable to hackers if they decide they want to target you? Well, we are a pretty big target. Uh, we have an incredible security team and, and uh, many active programs um, that you know, we know work to prevent that. We work with governments in 20 different countries, have large financial services firms as, as customers, and um, we're often chosen um, on the basis of the, the increase in security. And look, email is has the virtue, I think, of being a totally open, decentralized system. Anyone can participate. Um, but the flip side of that is it's a much harder system to control. There's more problems with phishing and spam. So I, I think email is uh, very useful and will continue to be used probably for tens of thousands of years at this point. Um, in that open and decentralized way. But where you have control and where you have a choice about how you uh, communicate, that's the internal case, um, people are much better off choosing a tool like Slack. Yeah, I'm about to say I should mention the reason why I mentioned that point about getting rid of email was uh, Mark Benioff, of course, uh, Salesforce, who said that he would love to um, get rid of that at some point in time. So your context here is very important. But something else that you just talked about there, and I think this is very important, is the growth that you're seeing in paid customers, but also your international growth. And if I look down, because you've provided the stats and we've got some here, just the sheer percentage of companies within some of the biggest indexes in the world that are now using your services and paying for it. I mean, these numbers are phenomenal. 40% of the FTSE 100, 68 of the Fortune 100, 27% of the ASX 200 in, in Australia. I mean, how high can these percentages get, Stuart? What's the ambition? I think they can get to 100%. I mean, we're, uh, I'm not sure what we are for the US now, maybe 70% um, uh, of the Fortune 100. Uh, and Slack is used by 156,000 businesses around the world. And so obviously there's only, you know, 500 in this index and 100 in that index. Um, and 156,000 is a much larger number. So that includes all kinds of businesses. It includes people operating small retail stores or, you know, plumbers, repairmen, um, but also the biggest issue of credit cards in the U.S. and the largest government contractor uh -huh. and the number one in retail and the number one consumer electronics. Um, you're right to point out the international growth, though, because we had 43% revenue growth this year, a, a, a fantastic result. Uh, but if you look at 
France, for example, is 47%. If you look at Japan, it was 76%. Um, and looking at the growth in the number of paid customers, which is kind of the leading indicator of revenue in the future, uh, much bigger numbers. Australia is 93%, the UK was 94%, Germany is 100%. Yeah, it, this is not just a US-based product. You, oh boy, is the growth international now and, and increasingly so. You know, I always watch before we have these conversations what you say on Twitter and you made a, a really fascinating comment and it ties to the point about the future of work. You, you wrote 34% of our product team started post-pandemic, also clearly tied to this strong growth that you've seen, but has never been to one of our offices, met their co-workers in person. I mean, that, as you describe, is mind-boggling. And there are many businesses around the world like that. How do you make that kind of team work when over a third of them have simply never met or been in an office? These are huge challenges and these challenges aren't going away anytime soon. Yeah, there's the huge challenges. The really interesting thing to me is, and the kind of uh, my hope is that we in the broadest, most inclusive collective sense, so not just Slack, not just Slack customers, but everyone used this opportunity to kind of reinvent and, and reimagine how we work. Because there's obviously many things that we liked about the old world. And while no one would choose to relive 2020, um, many people have pointed out the things that they like about this world. And that might be not no longer having to commute. That might be the ability to spend more time with their family. That might be increased flexibility. When systems get pushed this far off equilibrium, there's the opportunity for big change. It just doesn't exist. So all the things you mentioned, you know, I would I put myself in the camp of people who 13 months ago, uh, back in February of last year, would have said it's impossible for us to all start working from home and maintain the same level of productivity. And I think most executives, most leaders would, would have agreed with that. And then when it turned out that we had to, what we thought was impossible turned out to be possible. So I guess the the onus is on everyone now to, to question what other things we thought were impossible are actually possible and what kind of work style do we want to create? Do you think there's a risk of burnout, though, with people working at home? The stresses are different, children, people around you. Do you Absolutely. think it is sustainable yeah. for some of these reasons? Because I don't think we talk about this enough, the mental health aspects, too. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge concern for us. And I think you have to separate the impact of the pandemic, the anxiety that comes with that, the, you know, the lack of the amenities of normal life, not being able to sit in a cafe and watch people go by or get your nails done or just anything that people enjoyed in the, in the old world. If you take that away, um, then the, I think the increased flexibility will be good. And it's not necessarily about working physically from inside of your home, um, because you might have a very small apartment, it might not be a convenient space. But the ability to live where you want and still work for the same company, the ability to move you know, for outside of commuting distance so you can have a larger house for your family. All of that risk of burnout, I think, is really driven by, um, you know, kind of just cruising on defaults. So the way that we organize, the way that we lead, the way that we manage organizations has been really dependent on the physical infrastructure. But over the next five years, I think every organization will end up being what we call digital first. So take the digital infrastructure of the organization as seriously as they did the, the physical infrastructure, the, the buildings and the leases and the real estate and mm. the management of all that um, hardware. It's, it would seem, um, you know, if you want to take advantage of everything that this world offers, which includes recruiting candidates who live in markets that you previously have, haven't been able to recruit from, creating more flexibility, the... Uh, the need is to take that digital infrastructure a lot more seriously than I think we have over the last 10 or 15 years. Oh, Stuart, we just lost you at the end there. Great to chat. Thank you so much for joining us. Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack with a vision of the future there. We're back after this.
Welcome back to First Move into Brazil, where COVID-19 deaths are at record levels. President Bolsonaro has now created a crisis committee to oversee the government response and says 2021 will be the year of vaccinations. More than 300,000 people have now lost their lives to the coronavirus, with the daily death toll pushing past 3,000 for the first time this week. Now, as well as the health crisis, there are huge economic challenges, too, for Brazil. And that's something one company there is determined to take action on. The delivery giant iFood serves more than 230,000 restaurants across 1,000 cities in Brazil, as well as other parts of South and Central America. iFood has also now set up a banking service to help restaurants and is also focusing on sustainability, too, aiming to become carbon neutral by the end of the year. iFood CEO Fabrizio Bloisi joins us now from Sao Paulo. Wow, Fabrizio, great to have you back on. And you are clearly incredibly busy. Just start by telling us how your team are doing, given the situation there and what you're seeing in terms of demand. Are people staying away from restaurants and trying to stay safe and getting food delivered instead? Hello, Julia. Pleasure to be here again. Uh, As you said, the situation here is very difficult. We still have numbers of COVID going up, and it's a a big situation for economics of Brazil, for health of Brazil. We still have a lot of deaths. We are really investing in keeping our people safe, keeping our customers safe, our drivers safe, and the restaurants alive too. Uh, So we did a lot of cash flow boost for restaurants, more than a billion dollars in money from the restaurants. We put more than $20 million in funds to keep the drivers at home when they are sick and to improve their health through masks. So we are really investing in trying to make the population healthy. But I have to tell you, all these COVID fights show us that the public and the private companies, the public organizations and private can work together to help society. And that's why we are keeping all the COVID investments, but also really fighting in, jumping in to be a difference in the climate change fight that we have ahead to avoid the next COVID. I couldn't agree more. I want to talk about your uh, sustainability fight because you are taking huge strides here. But first, just I just want to get a sense because you are a delivery company, but you also are trying to provide the financial benefits, uh, liquidity. Yes. You've also got this sort of prepaid visa card for some of these. I mean, we've talked in the past on the show about yes. who is banked and who isn't banked or unbanked in, in the region. Just explain what a difference you're making to companies, because I do think this is a critical part of facilitating their delivery business rather than the in-house at this moment in time. I believe all platforms will every time more invest to support their customers through financing. So we are really committing to help restaurants to give them cash flow, loans, credit, and financial service. The restaurants need support at this time. We have an amazing amount of restaurants closing. So using our platform and our scale to reduce their their suffering on this moment is critical. And we are using a lot of technology to that, using credit, uh, digital accounts, and really giving new tools to the restaurants. Yeah, I mean, it's the combination of these two things is vitally important. Now, I know you want to talk about sustainability, so we will. I read that you make 48 million plus deliveries on a monthly basis. So that's a lot of journeys being made. That's clearly got a significant carbon footprint. How on earth, Fabrizio, are you going to become carbon neutral by the end of this year as a company? And I'm assuming that includes the delivery, too. Exactly. Look, everyone is asking for more food delivery. We did 48 million in December. We are doing much more today and we are growing 100% per year. Everyone wants a food delivery. 
and we are helping lots of people to stay at home. But with every delivery, we have a car or a bike going to the delivery, a motorcycle. And we also have many times a plastic packaging. And it's our responsibility to stop that. So we are really putting lots of energy as a technology company to innovate not only on AI or in drones, but to innovate in fighting climate change. We are doing that on three steps that is very nice to share with you all. First measure, so now we talk about our index. We, we, our carbon footprint is 128,000 tons, and we will every quarter report how we are reducing that. So measure is the first. Second, we are really focusing on reduce. So we started with electric bicycles. We are moving next week to electric bikes with this big goal to have 100,000 electric bikes, uh, motorcycles in five years. And we are going to do lots of financing to enable the electric bicycles to prosper in Brazil. And we are also investing on R&D on packaging because we want to use our scale to make the, 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 all the plastic uh, packaging recyclable through paper packaging. So we measure, we are working to reduce and also we are working to compensate. So we enter in a carbon credit market to buy carbon credit of projects in Amazon. What we can't reduce, we will compensate investing in Amazon projects. We don't only want to reduce it, but we want to be a positive carbon footprint. We want to regenerate and we want everyone to, when they buy food delivery, they know that they are not only not polluting, but also saving the environment. And I want to ask one thing from your viewers. We are working a lot on that. We are going to invest a lot of money, but I need you viewing this show to think I'm, I'm going to pay this premium green, this green premium to work with companies that are more green. And also the companies that are here, we need to put that at the top of our priorities and not so only talk about financial. So that's our commitment. I couldn't agree more with you. It's us as consumers that need to take a step to target companies, buy from companies that are actually trying to do this and do it incredibly quickly, which you are. Fabrizio, great to have you on. Come back soon, please. Fabrizio Blasi, the CEO of iFood. Great job and um, stay safe, please, over there in those challenging times. Stay safe. You too. All right. I'm from a company that aims to deliver in minutes to a cargo ship that could be stuck for weeks. The latest on the shipping jam in the Suez Canal after this. It could take days or even weeks to free the massive container ship stuck in the Suez Canal. That's according to the head of a salvage company looking at how to get the tanker out of one of the world's busiest waterways. Vessels are stranded on both sides. Some might have to go around Africa's southern tip, meaning big delays to their journeys. Ben Wiedemann joins us now for more. Ben, we keep talking about how this Suez Canal is responsible for 10% of world trade. But what about specifically for Egypt? What about the implications from them of having this waterway blocked? Well, the Suez Canal, Julia, is a very important source of revenue for the Egyptian government. In 2020, for instance, it earned $5.61 billion uh, from operating the canal. And for uh, ships to stop going through there for days and perhaps weeks is an important loss of revenue, keeping in mind that we're also in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, which has had an impact on another one of Egypt's important sources of revenue, uh, which is tourism. And of course, then there's there's simply the prestige of managing for years the Suez Canal and suddenly having to tell a shipping company, sorry, 
you can't come here. And now keep in mind, of course, that between June 1967 and 1975, the canal was closed, closed first as a result of the Six-Day War uh, between Israel and Egypt. And it didn't reopen until 1975 after the October War in 1973. So Egypt has gone for long periods in its modern history where the canal wasn't operating. But certainly now, in these, this day and age, it's an important source of revenue, prestige, and for it suddenly to be blocked, to be closed, is a real blow on many fronts. Julia? Of course, um, um, many fronts in the region too, whether we're talking about supplies. I mean, our viewers will recognize that you're in Lebanon as well, ravaged by the challenges of COVID, the explosion that the whole world was watching. Ben, what about the implications for, for people there too? Well, it's a real source of concern, Julia, because Lebanon gets its fuel to generate electricity from the Gulf. And we already have prolonged power outages. Last night, for instance, an unscheduled power outage in my neighborhood from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. That's in, additional, in, in addition to the regular daytime power cuts. If fuel just stops hitting, getting to Lebanon completely, a country already deep in crisis will really be on its knees. Syria, for instance, gets a lot of its oil from Iran that goes through uh, the Suez Canal. They also in Syria is suffering from a variety of well-known crises. And if, if they lose their source of fuel on top of everything else, they also could be facing the abyss. Julia? Yeah, the whole international community needs to make this a top priority. The importance, the strategic importance of the Suez Canal illustrated once again. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today. Ben Whedon there. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages in the coming hours. Search for at Chasley CNN. And in the meantime, as always, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.